You know, I, I think as a people, we're in this section, of course, in the sermon where Jesus is warning us. I, I don't think we like warnings per se. As a people, I don't think we do. You know, if you see wet paint, of course, you're tempted to touch it. You know, if you just got your license and you're going out driving and your mother says, hey, it's kind of slick out there, you better take it easy. We don't like to be warned on things. Um, I came across this article in, uh, a couple weeks ago in the paper regarding a, uh, in East Midlands, Texas. There's a quarry, there's a, a lake that people swim at. It has this bluish-green water to it, uh, kind of like the Bahamas. And, uh, but it's a filthy lake. It's filled with rubbish. It has old cars. It has car. It's just a dirty lake, but people will still swim in it because it's so pretty. Even though they're warned, they're warned on how, on how nasty the lake is. In fact, it has a pH level of over 11, which would be somewhat analogous to bleach. And people still come. They're warned, and they still come and swim. So the town council had to vote to dye the lake black so that people would not swim in it anymore because it was so hazardous. It took them doing that. The warnings, the encouragements, the threats were not able to change the disposition of the people. Now, I trust today we won't be like that as Jesus gives us another warning. Last week, he warned us not to enter the wide and and the broad gate that leads to the easy road that leads to destruction. But he warned us to enter the narrow gate that leads to a hard road, but it leads to life. That's what the warning is. Well, today warns us about, about teachers. There's false teachers and there's true teachers. And, and, and the stakes are very high. You know, as you kind of look at this last section of, of the sermon here, he gives us a warning about these two gates leading to these two roads. Then we're going to have these two teachers, true and false. And, and, then, and then there's going to be two groups of disciples from these teachers. There's, there's true professors of faith and there's false professors. Those false professors that are deceived, they're going to say one day, Lord, didn't we not do this and this and this in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. What awful deception to think that you're in a position of rightness before God and to find that you're not. It's the disciples of these false teachers. And then the last one is these two foundations. All these warnings he's given to us, the stakes are very, very high. If you turn with me, to uh, Matthew chapter 7, we're going to read 15 to 20. Now, if you're a note taker, I want you thinking three boxes here. Uh, The first box is Jesus is going to warn us of the reality and the danger of these false teachers. So he's going to warn us of the reality and the danger. That's the first thing. And then secondly, Jesus is going to teach us really two tests in which to discern a false teacher from a true teacher. He'll give us some tests that we can apply to discern whether they are teaching truth or not. And then last, he's going to call us to action in regard to taking certain steps to avert the danger. And that's kind of where I'll hit some of the application points. So let's read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, and think of those three boxes. He's going to warn us, and then he's going to give us some tests, and then he's going to call us to do something. Okay, 7.15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them 
by their fruits. So the first thing he does is, obviously, Jesus is kind. We like warnings. Warnings are acts of grace to tell us of danger where we may not see it. So Jesus says, beware of false prophets. In other words, you can just imagine those two gates that we talked about, that there are going to be teachers there outside the narrow gate kind of dissuading us from going through that hard gate, which leads to a difficult road. They're trying to encourage us to a broader, easier, smoother path. That's the warning. Now, of course, these false teachers weren't new to just Jesus' ministry. Wherever truth goes out, error is kind of sewn along with it. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, you have warnings in Deuteronomy 11, and boy, sprinkled throughout Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, of these false prophets that, that are seeking to bring about harm and injury. Now remember, God raised up prophets and teachers for our benefit. The teachers are like player coaches. They're instructing you. They're encouraging you. They're trying to explain things to you. They're rebuking you. They're encouraging, loving, keeping us on that road so that on the final day we're glad for the presence of those teachers. But whenever a true teacher has gone out, so false teachers have sown errors and sown destruction in teaching. So Jesus, of course, warns us. He says, they will come to you. You don't need to find them. They will come to you. And Jesus isn't just warning his contemporaries. He is warning contemporaries. But throughout the church age. So if you look in every book in the New Testament, you will find warnings of false prophets, false teachers. In fact, the whole book of Jude, one chapter, but the bulk of it's on false teaching. Second Peter, chapter 2, filled with false teaching. Every book. And not only in Jesus' time and the generations beyond, but even to the very end. In Matthew 24, 11, we read, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. That is the chapter of the eschaton. That's the end chapter. That's the end of the story. Even then there will be false prophets and false teachers seeking to mislead and misguide you. Now, the danger with these false prophets, of course, uh, isn't so much the warning Jesus is giving us, isn't so much for the obvious heretics. I have no doubt that if someone came in this pulpit and began to preach some clear heresy, you would identify it and you would reject it. I don't doubt that at all. I think the danger is in the deception of these false teachers. I think that's Jesus' point because he says they're wolves, but they're in sheep's clothing. In other words, they're going to be like you. They're going to speak like you. They're going to act like you. They're going to use language of the Bible. They're going to speak about God. They're going to speak about Christ. But it's deceptive. In fact, C.S. Lewis says this, nothing can deceive unless it bears a plausible resemblance to reality. That's true. I mean, if, if they're going to sow truth and error together. Or Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great preacher in London in the mid-20th century at Westminster Chapel, he said this, he says, you don't suspect anything at all that is wrong. There's nothing at all that attracts your attention or arouses your suspicion. Nothing glaringly wrong will be part and parcel of many false teachers. The danger, though, isn't just the deception, but it's that they're wolves. You are sheep. You should see quickly. That's a problem. Sheep are defenseless. Wolves are natural predators to sheep, and they're dangerous. Now, it's not, by the way, I want to make a distinction here. The false teachers, I'm not just speaking about those who are ignorant or those who don't know how to handle the word or they haven't studied, they haven't prepared, they haven't worked diligently to bring correct teaching to the body. I'm not speaking about those. These are ravenous wolves. 
The word ravenous means greedy for gain. In other words, these are teachers that have ulterior motives. They have intentionality to profit from you rather than serve you. There is, there is not just financial gain perhaps involved. There may be gain of honor and recognition among people, but they have a desire to feast on the flock, not to protect and build up the flock. And the danger is that they're going to mislead you with their own deception. And it's going to lead you to that day that we'll see about next week where he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Can you not imagine the faces of those people? But I did miracles in your name. I prophesied in your name. I had these gifts that people recognized. He says, I never knew you. Normally, I would look at that passage in relationship to 24 to 27. So you have these false professors, and then you have the house built on rock and the house built on sand, and put them together. But that verse, those, those uh, 21 and 22 and 23, they're so troubling, I thought, I just want to take those alone. Because so many people trouble are troubled by them, and rightfully so. So that's the danger, is the deception often isn't seen until the very end, and that's too late. So, so first, Jesus is just warning us of the reality and the danger. Do you believe this warning? I think many of you, if we were alone, you would admit to the possibility, but not the probability. Many of us, I think, feel overconfident in our ability to discern truth from error. I think many of us feel like, well, that would never happen to me. I'd never be duped. Now, we have the David Koresh's in Waco. We have the Jim Jones in Central America. And we look at those things, and I'd sniff those out right away, and you might. But it's the deceptive nature that is troubling to me in this passage. So he warns us. But secondly, Jesus gives us some tests. Look with me in verse 16, because this is the test that we are to use to me, to the leadership of this church, and to any teacher, frankly. He says, you will recognize them by their fruits. That word recognize is a a kind of interesting little Greek word. It means that you will fully know them, that that, that the mask will be removed, the cloak of deception taken off. You will know who they are by these tests. He says, by the fruit. Now, the fruit, I would say, first would be this doctrinal fruit, the content of their teaching. We want to examine the fruit of their teaching. What are they teaching? What is the content? Again, it's not going to be this open, flat contradiction to historical Christian faith. That would be too obvious. There's going to be a deception to it. There's going to be perhaps an overemphasis or an underemphasis. Again, I like the way Martin Lloyd-Jones phrased it. He said, it's not in what they say. Often you'll agree in what they say. It's what they don't say. That's the issue. That's what I want you to hang on, that point. False teaching is often identified by what they don't say, what never comes up in preaching, what is never preached. It's what they omit that is so troubling. Let me give you just a few examples of what I mean by this. Number one would be that they don't often preach the hard way. That's what we're on. We're in this tough gate that we go through, that we squeeze. Remember how it crushes you? I'm in dire straits. This hard way that leads to a difficult road. You don't hear that. You hear abundant life. You hear victory in Jesus. You don't hear how God uses suffering, how God brings suffering to bring about change in us. You hear a smooth and an easy path. You don't hear the difficult passages about counting the cost and the difficulty involved. You have this idea of, you know, God wants to be happy. God wants to be God wants me to be fulfilled. 
In this kind of scenario, we would call them health and wealth gospelers. What they're doing is they want you to be happy. They want you to be fulfilled. I've had a numerous number of people say, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? I was like, not always. I, I don't think that's speaking meanly of God. I mean, life on this side, fighting sin and, and, and fighting death, I don't think it's meant to be happy per se. That doesn't mean to say that God doesn't want us satisfied in him, but that may be different than what people think about in terms of happiness. Joel Osteen is a classic example of this kind of teaching. I'm not going to reference people, by the way, on a regular basis, but him in particular in the sense of your better life now or be the best you. This is where the gospel is used as a means for my own happiness or my own personal fulfillment rather than the gospel leading me to worship God who is worthy of all of our lives. So, so you often don't hear that narrow preaching. Or another example would be you don't hear much about the nature of sin and in particular God's wrath against sin. You'll hear about the love of God. You may hear about the, the forgiveness of God, but you don't hear about this wrath of God against sin. It's almost like some teachers have this blind optimism to how God is going to deal with sin. And it's as if, as if it's just going to all vanish away. You don't hear that hard call for repentance, that we need to turn from sin. We need to be killing sin, or it'll be killing us. And friends, if you take sin away, then you take the cross away. And they, they go together. Reinhold Niebuhr was a theologian in the mid-20th century, and he writes this. He says, uh, this is modern-day preaching in his estimation. He said, you have a God without wrath bringing um, men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. It isn't, it isn't historical, biblical Christianity. Uh, another, and, and by the way, you'll notice this at funerals a lot. At funerals a lot, you won't hear the nature of sin and what Christ has done to defeat sin. You hear about the goodness of the person, and you hear about all that they did and that they never had a person who wasn't a friend. You don't hear about the nature of sin and how Christ has crushed it. And that's where our hope rests. Our hope for Joe isn't that he was a nice guy. Our hope for Joe is that he's had a Savior who's crushed sin and borne the wrath of God and and now has his Christ's righteousness wrapped around him, and that's why we're happy for Joe. I mean, that's, you don't hear that. It's false teaching. Another one is the judgment of God and the reality of hell. You, you don't hear this idea. Again, you hear a God of love, a God of mercy, and he is those things. But you don't speak about this judgment. You have more of a humanistic or a democratic approach to judgment. It's all going to work itself out. And gone from pulpits is this idea of the nature of hell. Now, I say this with sober. Um, it's a dark reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. Like one Italian critic um, from the modern age, Pierre Cambronzi, has said this. He says, we can now confirm that hell is finished, that the great theater of torments is closed for an indeterminate period, and then after 2,000 years of Horrifying performances, the play will not be repeated. The long, triumphal season has come to an end. That's what he says about the doctrine of hell. Why? Because it's vacated the pulpits. People don't speak about the nature of God's judgment for sin and eternal damnation. You don't hear that anymore. And yet, 
would it surprise you to know that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven? We all want heaven, but he spoke more about hell. Bertrand Russell, the British agnostic, said this. this was, at least he got the message, although he didn't. He said this, There is one serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is that he believed in hell. You're absolutely right, he did. I mean, the reality of it is, Jesus could sleep in the back of a boat when his life was threatened. But when he was about to face the judgment of God in the Garden of Gethsemane, he couldn't sleep while the others did. In the boat, everybody's panicking because of the threat to life. He's sleeping, resting in God's care. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the judgment of God's about to fall. They're sleeping and he can't sleep. And yet we're just sleeping through life. The reality of hell is not to be omitted. I wouldn't make it a, I, I want to preach it with truth and with sobriety. But surely we don't want to lose that as a plank of the truth of biblical Christianity. Another, another example would be the goodness of men. Kind of touched on that with Joe in the box. You, know, this, you often don't hear the depravity of man. You'll hear the goodness of men, the absolute potential that we have as men and women made in the image of God, and there is great potential that we have been made in his image, but you don't hear about the depravity of man and our brokenness, our inability to bring forth anything right and good for God on our own merits. Otherwise, again, the truth of Christ's cross is diminished. Another issue would be the atonement of Christ is often omitted from false teaching. What I mean by this is preachers will teach about the cross as an example of God's love for the world, and it is that. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. It's true. But they don't look at this cross as a place of God's holiness being vindicated, but through the punishment of a son who's bearing our sins, that, that penal substitutionary atonement. There was a penalty paid by Christ substituting himself for us, as opposed to just kind of this sentimental view. You know, there is... Um, Sir John Bowring was an um, English uh, Unitarian. He didn't believe in the atonement, and yet he writes this beautiful hymn, In the Cross of Christ I Glory. But what does it mean about the cross of Christ to him? So, so we don't talk about that nature that God was pleased to bruise the Son for our sins. We don't hear that as much. So, so these are just examples of how we can test the doctrinal integrity of a teacher. Again, it's not what they say. Much of what they say you'll agree with. It's what they don't say that is important. Are they preaching the whole counsel of God? Are, are they speaking from a historical standpoint that they're keeping on the shoulders of the men and women before? That's the first test. The second test is even more searching. It's the fruits of their lives. It's their moral character. Look with me as, as Jesus says, he says this, you'll recognize them by their fruits. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In other words, fundamental to every farmer or every gardener is the nature of the plant produces the fruit of the plant. So, so you won't go finding grapes on thorn bushes. You won't go finding figs on thistles. You won't do it because it's not their nature. That's why Jesus is saying a healthy tree produces healthy fruit. A diseased tree produces diseased fruit. In other words, these false teachers, you can put a sheepskin around them, but just wait. You'll see that they're really not a sheep. 
In other words, false teachers can mimic marks of the Spirit, but over time, you will see, in fact, that it's not true. But that's the key, over time, that you see these things. In fact, there is a, um, there is a thorn bush, the buckhorn thorn bush. It puts out a little flower that actually looks a bit like a fig at the beginning. But give it time, and the flower fades, and you see that there's no, there's no grape, there's nothing there. It was, it was kind of a disguise. It was kind of a ruse. This is the importance about, about sitting under teaching for prolonged periods of time. This is one of the problems with the Internet. You don't know their lives. You don't know what they're really like. They may be great teachers, but do you know them? Do you know the fruit of their lives? Do you know their moral character? This is, I think, why Paul wrote to Timothy in the fifth chapter of the first letter where he says, don't be so hasty laying hands. I think he was speaking about ordaining elders. He says, don't be so hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Then he says this in, in verse 25. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Those two in that type of proximity, I think he's saying, don't be so hasty laying on of hands. Because some sins aren't immediately seen, but they become visible later, as well as their good actions. So, so there's a timing issue here. Now, when you are to examine the fruit of a false teacher, or any teacher, I should say, uh, I don't want you to examine the gifts of the Spirit, per se. They may be great preachers and teachers. But examine the fruit of the Spirit. Is there peace, joy, patience, love? Is there long-suffering? Is there a desire for the health of the body? Are they like Paul that says, I groan again in the pains of childbirth until Christ be formed in the people? Is there a passion for people? Or is there self-promotion, self-defense? I mean, Paul said to the Ephesian elders, he says in Acts 20, he says, you know how I've lived among you. In other words, he pointed to his life as evidence of his message. He says, you've seen the fruit of the gospel in my own life. When you examine their fruit, I wouldn't expect perfection. I'm not saying that, that they have to live. The pastor or the elder has to be up here and the rest of the people. No, 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 I'm not implying that at all. I'm simply saying this, that, that when they do sin, how do they respond? Are they repentant? Do they seek reconciliation? And that's, the, that's the check for me because I, I don't live a perfect life. I sin. Sin against my family, I sin against God. Imagine to harbor anger and bitterness at different times. So, so, but is there transparency? Is there vulnerability? Is there confession when confronted? And so we examine their fruit, uh, also the fruit of their fruit, right? We examine their disciples. If there's a teacher and he has disciples, what is the fruit of their life? And is it reflective of the gospel? Or is there division and jealousy and bitterness? Now, I, feel, I grieve over some of these pastors that have had just church split after church split after church split. I'm beginning to wonder, is, is that, I mean, there's a problem there. That's a problem. You know, in First Timothy, again, Paul writing to this young pastor, he says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Those are the two tests of teachers, doctrine and life. Watch your life and doctrine closely. We have to monitor them. So Jesus has warned us over the reality and the danger of these teachers. But secondly, he has given us two tests, both doctrinal and both personal, moral character. Those are the tests that you are to use towards us. 
leadership of the church, any teacher under which you sit. But then Jesus, I think, gives us some encouragement here to, to actively engage in this, that you're not bystanders, that, that you, are, you are to engage in the task. And, and the first thing I would say in terms of what does active engagement look like for you as a church, I would say it would be a vigilance, vigilance to be aware of the danger that you face. He says, beware. And that word beware is keep yourself away from. In other words, be aware of the influences and the presence of whom you sit and learn. Now, in other words, don't take it for granted because they have a bunch of letters after their name or they're published or they're popular or they're very nice or they're very funny. Don't take that as just carte blanche for listening to everything they say. Now, saying this, I'm not looking to create a bunch of heresy Hunters, and just because you may disagree with somebody theologically doesn't mean they're a heretic. I don't mean to imply that at all. But be aware, be vigilant to be aware of who you're listening to. That, that, that be a good steward. You are influenced by hundreds of things a week. Things that are influencing your mind, voices that you're listening to that are guiding your decisions, guiding your formations of what's right, what's wrong, what's appropriate. In fact, George Barna, in a recent poll uh, into research, regarding factors that influence people's lives. Here's the top tier of influencers that affect you to 60 to 70%, he estimates, of our behavior. He says, here's what they are. Movies, music, television, and the Internet are the top four factors that you will listen to, watch, and that will begin to influence you, perhaps slowly, but they'll influence you, as well as books and family and public policy. These are the major contributors to at least affecting why you think the way you think. At the bottom of the tier was the local church. Is that incredible? You're coming here to hear the word of God, and that's the bottom tier of what influences you. So, so be aware of that. Yeah, I love J.C. Ryle. You know, he, he gave this, uh, he was that British Anglican bishop in, uh, in the 19th century, and he says this about a friend. He said, here's how to define a friend. I've shared this with you before. Uh, define a friend. He said that uh, if you had two weeks left to live, who would you want to come and sit with you? That Boy, that, that, that clears up a lot of people, doesn't it? It puts a lot of people in the acquaintance box. So, so be aware, be vigilant over the voices uh, for which you hear. Uh, uh, secondly, uh, develop a love for doctrine. I mean, I mean you, I'm calling you as a church to seek God for grace so that you would love the Scriptures more. Uh, a, a, a love for doctrine, though, not just, not just kind of, as one pastor said, kind of a, a coffee mug theology, or a, a Christian t-shirt theology. I, I would even have you, I, I say this with all due respect for the intentionality of Christian bookstore owners, but I tell you, there's a lot of stuff there that is, is just mere popcorn. It's mere popcorn. It, it might taste good for a day or two, but you can't live on it. And I, What I'm speaking about is to avert danger of these false prophets and these false teachers is that you begin to know doctrine. Now, I know that's a tough pull for you because we live in a very reductionistic age. We live in an age where we want to boil everything down to its simple parts, whether it's four steps to being a better husband. It takes more than four. Or three steps to having a better marriage. Really, the complicated nature of two 
collapsing lives coming together in form of marriage, and then it just takes three steps? Or, 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 the, or sadly, this idea of, you know, because we do it. We have, we have carpentry for dummies. We have auto mechanics for dummies. We want to boil it down to a series of pictures and steps. It's more complicated than that. And it, it's more demanding for you. You know, when someone says to me, ah, doctrine, I don't need doctrine. Doctrine divides. Just give me Jesus. I appreciate the, the desire to have a pure devotion for Christ. I do. And, and I think that the church has been guilty of complicating things unnecessarily. I, I agree with that. But there are certain things that, that can become simple without becoming simplistic. It, it's hard to boil down. When you say, just give me Jesus, for example, my question is, well, which one do you want? Do you want the pasty-faced, blue-eyed one? Or do you want the one with a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, consuming all those who oppose him in Revelation? Which one do you want? There's a, there's a lot of Jesuses out there on the market. So we need to study the scriptures to find out what does the scripture tell me about Christ or about salvation? And, and incidentally, the whole idea of false preachers and false teachers, doesn't it imply that there is a truth from which they are false? In other words, doesn't any degree of falsity, doesn't it imply that there has to be a standard that they're deviating from that you need to know and I need to know? So we want to develop a love for doctrine. Uh, thirdly, we want to be invested in the church. Um, the, the, the elders are sheepdogs, if you will, uh, meant to protect. Oftentimes there's kind of this acrimonious relationship or this kind of awkward relationship between leadership and people because we don't want them breathing down our backs too much. And, and, and the idea is that God has ordained the church to have leaders that are confronting error for you protecting you. It's more of a corrective measure to confront error and point it out. But, but they aren't, elders and leaders aren't just corrective in nature, they are formative. You know, we're called to sow truth within the body, that they want to make sure that Bible studies um, and, and the pulpit and the teaching is such that, that truth is being sown in your soul. So it's not just confronting heresies all the time, but it's promoting truth, which makes sense. I remember a landscaper told me once, there's two ways to get rid of weeds. One is to spray with weed kill. Another way is to plant grass. The more grass you plant, the less room there is for weeds. It takes up the space. The more truth that is sown, guess what? Danger and error doesn't fall so lightly on that lawn. That's what we want to be about. That's what the Bereans were encouraged. Actually, when, when Paul was doing his missionary journeys, he commends the Koreans. He sa- Bereans, he says this. I'd commend the Koreans too, actually. They're becoming very... Just to be internationally sensitive here. Uh, now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. What, what, a, what a statement to find in Scripture. There is a comparison being made. He says the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Why? They received the word with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So their testing gave them this eternal designation of being noble in character. That's significant. And and then fourth, I would say, I would ask you to be aware of your own tendency towards self-deception. I'm still on that last bucket trying to fill it in with some ideas. Be aware of your own tendency. You and I are sheep. We do tend to run from hard things. 
we tend to want to make peace with certain sins. We do love ease and comfort. And so it's easy to have our ears tickled. We do like it when someone in authority is saying something we already agree with. And so it's easy to be dissuaded or to be misled and deceived. In fact, Paul again warns this to Timothy. He says, A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. I mean, that's part of your responsibility. The people are accumulating for themselves false teachers. In other words, you're going to different outlets and sources to hear what you already want to hear. And I think there's a warning there for us to know that we are prone to be deceived, and often quite easily. So I would encourage you to be aware of that. Think less of your ability and think more of the importance of being with a body that can help you, not just leaders, but one another. And then the last thing I would say that we need to engage in is a seeking after God's spirit that we might be led rightly, asking God for his spirit that we would have ears that would be attuned to the master's voice and not to the voices of hired hands. That the Spirit of God dwelling within us is going to be guiding us. I, I cannot believe how many errors God has spared me from half the time I wasn't even aware of it. Just leading me to certain uh, authors and certain teachings. and It's just let us, and, and that's, the, that's the spirit. And I would ask you to ask for it. And there's a reason that God would have us ask, because it declares to us our own dependence on God. He wants you to, he, could he have given it to us? Well, he did, actually, seal us with the spirit. But could he just, just give us doses of the spirit at his pleasure? He could. So why does he ask? He wants us involved. He wants us to understand our dependence. Now, you know that he's gracious as a father, Last week, or I think it was two weeks ago, I quoted, we covered that passage in Matthew. A parallel passage is in Luke, and that passage is this. Uh, if your son asks for a piece of bread, will you give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? Now, I mean, fathers and mothers, ask yourselves, if your children ask for those things, what will you give to them? He says, if you, so I put the question to myself, Tom, I could hear uh, Jesus Christ saying, Tom, though you are evil, which he wouldn't, be, he wouldn't be wrong to say that, though you are evil, if you, Tom, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, and in Luke's gospel he says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, I think about <clears throat> when the kids wanted a dog. You, you know me. I think most of you know my, my appreciation for dogs is limited. I, I, I like them. The dogs, and uh, I am not the lover of dogs that other family members are, uh, and because I know that a dog involves money and effort and time and tearing up furniture and shoes, and I could just go on for another sermon. But uh, the reality of it is, when the kids asked for a dog, I didn't want a dog, but I enjoyed giving them what would be pain to me, and that was a dog. And I loved giving when they opened the box. And the dog was there. I had a deep and passionate joy. I loved giving this gift 
to my children. How much more will your heavenly father love to give you the spirit of God when you ask him? The spirit of God that will fill you and lead you and protect you and guide you and all these things. So ask him. Ask him, say, God, fill me with your spirit that I would be led into all truth in a gracious, humble, God-centered way. So this is a good warning to us. He's warned us about the narrow gate. He's warned us about the false teacher. And next week, there's going to be a warning. I would just ask you to go ahead and read 21 to 23 because it's going to be a very challenging passage because there's many of you that I don't want to afflict, but I want to comfort. There are some of you who are comfort that I may want to afflict. And the way those two things happen needs the Spirit of God to direct. And so uh, I'm going to begin in prayer, and then Ray is going to close us in prayer. And we can respond to his word. If you do pray, I ask that you pray uh, briefly, and I would ask that you would pray loudly so that this would be a corporate time of prayer that we're agreeing with your prayers. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, Father, I thank you uh, for the gospel that has uh, freed us from sin and shame and for the gospel that helps us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and and the gospel that will help keep us on uh, the path of truth and not error. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.